Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, reporters covering the pandemic can't help but note the impact of the digital divide. How do you work from home or do remote learning or even register for a vaccine without not just available but affordable high-speed internet? Yet, a major congressional effort to end that divide is so far generating little interest from big media, almost as if the corporate press accepted the existence of information haves and have-nots because that's how goods get divided in this country, even if it doesn't make technological, economic, or humanitarian sense. We'll hear about the Accessible, Affordable Internet for All Act from Ernesto Falcone, Senior Legislative Counsel at Electronic Frontier Foundation. Also on the show, as with the country's communication networks, there's an obvious social win and cost efficiency in adapting buildings to climate realities, making them not just energy efficient, right now buildings generate about 40% of greenhouse gases, but future-proofed against predictable and predicted weather events. Many cities think just that, and they were working on building codes to reflect it, until industry groups, including home builders and the American Gas Association, said, not so fast. We'll get this very important, but still under-the-radar story from Alexander Kaufman, who's been on it. He covers climate change, energy, and environmental policy as a senior reporter at HuffPost. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at recent press. Listeners will know of the murder of eight people, six of them Asian women, in three spas in the Atlanta area by a white man, via media that initially foregrounded the killer's claims of sex addiction and a police officer's characterization of him as having had a bad day. The group Stop AAPI Hate reported some 3,800 accounts of anti-Asian hate in the past year, 68% of those targeted women. Christine Ahn of Korea Peace Now encouraged seeing links between U.S. militarism in Asia, its forever wars and countless bases, and the jingoism and orientalism against Asian Americans that fuels violence. Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta noted that Asian women working vulnerable jobs in a pandemic reflect compounding impacts of misogyny, structural violence, and white supremacy. Historian Ellen Wu reminded of the PAGE Act, which barred immigration of Chinese women to the U.S. based on the notion that they were all prostitutes and a threat to public health. And a number of people cited the movie Full Metal Jacket and decades of U.S. popular culture dehumanizing Asian women as hypersexual and submissive. What none of them said is that moving forward requires teasing out precisely what proportion of motivation was that the victims were mostly women or Asian or underprotected. If you read coverage that explicitly or implicitly tries to pit those ideas and those people against one another, just remember that that's media's packaging of life, not life as lived, to which we need policy and action to respond. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR.
In 2001, then-FCC Chair Michael Powell responded to a question about the digital divide, the term used to describe people of color, poor, and rural communities' relative lack of technological access. Quote, you know, I think there's a Mercedes divide. I'd like to have one. I can't afford one. Close quote. For those who had problems with the statement beyond its obvious falseness, Powell complained that he was taken out of context. He wasn't. He led up to the quip by saying that the phrase digital divide is, quote, dangerous in the sense that it suggests that the minute a new and innovative technology is introduced in the market, there is a divide unless it is equitably distributed among every part of society. And that is just an unreal understanding of an American capitalistic system, close quote. And he followed it with, quote, I'm not meaning to be completely flip about this. I think it's an important social issue, but it shouldn't be used to justify the notion of essentially the socialization of deployment of the infrastructure, close quote. The idea that access to useful computer communication technology is a market luxury to which the poor ought not aspire, rather than a basic requirement for participation in the economy, was offensive in 2001. Also a historical, as it conveniently ignores that the Internet was developed by the government in the first place. But if that was clear then, it should be crystalline 20 years later, as we see working from home and remote learning pose tremendous challenges for those who have and can afford high-speed Internet in their home. What about those people, those communities, who can't? Are they just off the page? There's legislation aimed at recognizing that broadband access is as basic as water or electricity, but you might not have heard about the Accessible, Affordable Internet for All Act from major news media. We're joined now by Ernesto Falcone, Senior Legislative Counsel at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He joins us now by phone from the Bay Area. Welcome to Counterspin, Ernesto Falcone. Thank you for having me. Well, so when I looked up AAIA, Google said... Are you sure you don't mean Asia and broadband? You know, um, so it, it's not just media not covering a kind of wonky or tech issue. We have been reading stories about kids who have to go to fast food parking lots to do their homework. You know, I mean, media are talking about the problem. So I guess I don't quite get the, the relative lack of attention to an attempted response. But tell us about the AAIA introduced by James Clyburn and Amy Klobuchar. What would it do and why do you think it's needed? You know, I think sometimes when we talk about the digital divide, we tend to think it's like a game of perpetual catch-up and we'll, and we'll never get there. And, I, you know, I think to your quote in 2001, that, that is kind of the understanding of the infrastructure and the technology at that time. You fast forward to today... It is pretty clear there is one unifying medium, one type of infrastructure that's unifying all of the technologies so that if you build out this one infrastructure, you will have access to the whole range of 21st century technologies for decades, and that's fiber optics. The AAIA, the Accessible Affordable Internet Act, essentially creates a federal program at the size and scale of our electrification effort from the 20s and 30s, where we simply just said, it's just unconscionable to have anyone not connected to the electrical grid. It's, it's unconscionable to have someone not connected to a 21st century infrastructure and spend the requisite dollar amount. It's around 90 plus billion dollars, which is what you would need for an, a nationwide solution for all corners of the country with almost no exception. 
And if you build fiber and fiber optics, you enable things like high-speed wireless, you enable things like the SpaceX Starlink, the orbit satellites, you enable gigabit internet connections at homes and businesses. All of those things come through the exact same infrastructure. And it's just important for the policy in this space where we're deciding how to spend infrastructure dollars, like we build the roads and whatnot, to basically go head forth in that. And that kind of actually puts America in a place where we're on the same pace with Europe and China. Both areas of the world have adopted essentially a fiber standard for their infrastructure or pushing it to all people, China being way ahead of everyone at this point. And we don't play catch up now so that in five years it'll be a wash and we'll be caught up essentially. We will see some pretty massive differences about internet access globally, as well as here at home, where your high income users have cheap, fast internet areas where you have free, fast internet, and your low income rural will have really expensive old wires that are delivering really slow speeds at really high prices. Yeah, you have written and described that as digital redlining, which seems apt. I think as we think of looking forward, though, we keep stumbling over this thing, at least U.S. corporate news media do keep presenting this conflict. And I would describe the lazily the standard corporate media frame as there's social justice that some of us might want, but that's versus the rigors of market capitalism, which push come to shove, we all really agree are best. And it's this gets thrown up again and again. And so not for nothing, but there's not and I don't even want to concede it, but there's not a conflict with profit-making here necessarily, is there, when we talk about fiber? No, not at all. For I would say more than two-thirds of the country. You can do it commercially in a commercially feasible way um, so long as the financing is made available to, to build and there's players that are willing to build. And I think there's actually lots of local businesses that are willing to take on that challenge. But what the Accessible Affordable Internet Act does is it embraces all the models. And the model that this country desperately needs to really bolster is the public model of broadband, meaning local cooperatives, school districts, local governments. There has to be a public sector version of access in lots of parts of this country, particularly rural markets, simply because you cannot build this infrastructure with purely with a for-profit mindset. You have to look at it as a what is the thing that would develop our local economy benefits lots of other for-profit entities, right? All the local businesses, agriculture, retail, you name it. But the government has to start looking at this like the road and allowing commerce to flow over those roads. And if we don't build the roads, right, the, the internet infrastructure road, if you will, you actually stifle private sector activity. And so there's a real partnership to be had between government and people of all walks of life. And it really is the public model of broadband that is underutilized in this country. But this bill, not only does it make the money available to make that a possibility in lots of places, but it also, what the word is, preempts states that have banned local governments from building their own infrastructure. All those states that have done that did that at the behest of the cable lobby, who basically argued, oh, if you let the public sector invest in this infrastructure, it'll drive up private investment. And that's an absurd argument because we're in 2021 now. If the private sector has not invested today, at this point, they're never coming. And so it's just a dynamic where, you know, I think when they made those arguments 15 years ago, you can believe it because these new networks were just starting. You had Google building fiber networks, all sorts of activity starting around 2005. But we're in 2021. If they haven't built out that 21st century infrastructure, and at most it takes maybe five years to get to, to where you want to go, they're not coming. And it's time to really start embracing local models to solve our own problems. 
Well, let me just ask you, finally, it sounds as though it's very much a question of who's at the table as decisions are made. Is there change to be fought for there? Because, you know, I I hear these ideas, but if no one's in the room except industry when things are being decided, then that's part of the problem. So where do you see changes being made maybe to the decision-making process here that could be helpful? So I think as a first matter, we, we need a federal program, right? And and we need states to have their own programs that bolster public models along with local private. I mean, local private is very different than your big national players. Your AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon of the world really do neglect these communities versus, you know, someone who lives in the township themselves. They're more willing to work with people to figure out how to get everyone connected. And they're just motivated just simply because they live among you. I think the first step for people is to make sure they contact the congressperson and their senator to tell them to support James Clyburn's Accessible Affordable Internet Act, because we have to get that out of the Congress. And the danger here is we are talking about a program that will connect everyone to a 21st century infrastructure. Who's going to be the opposition? It's going to be the companies who have built the 20th century infrastructure, right, the slow, expensive stuff by today's standards who absolutely do not want to be replaced, right? Like they will do everything they can to prevent progress here. And we have to just kind of keep every legislator in line and in supportive of forward-thinking infrastructure plans because there's lots of ways you could spend money but don't make progress. And I suspect the industry, you know, primarily led by the cable industry, will do everything they can to, to curtail or hinder or inhibit real progress in this space. The digital divide is a choice, and it can be ended with concrete, forward-thinking programs of this size and focus and scale. But that's up to us through channeling it through our representation and our representatives to, to hear the people's voice. We've been speaking with Ernesto Falcone, Senior Legislative Counsel at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You can find their work online at EFF.org. Ernesto Falcone, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me. You might think of pipelines, factories, or coal mines as the main arenas of the fight over climate policy, but there's another battlefield that's rarely in the spotlight, buildings. Buildings account for 40% of all energy consumed in the U.S. and about the same proportion of greenhouse gases produced. Cities and the broader society have an interest in rules for building houses, offices, etc., that are not just energy efficient, but also adaptive to climate disruption. And many cities are doing that, setting a goal of net zero buildings, some of them banning natural gas in new construction, or requiring the capacity to accommodate fully electric appliances and electric vehicle charging. Critically, local governments have been increasingly participating in the process determining building codes themselves. It's that participation that has recently become a contest within the bigger contest between communities and industries about how seriously to address climate change. It is, as our next guest says, a quiet but extremely consequential fight. Here to fill us in is Alexander Kaufman. He covers climate change, energy, and environmental policy as a senior reporter at HuffPost, and he's co-founder of and now advisor to the nonprofit environmental news collaborative, Floodlight. He joins us now from Queens. Welcome to Counterspin, Alexander Kaufman. Thank you so much for having me. Well, when there are catastrophic weather events, you sometimes read about 
building codes, but they're rarely talked about as policymaking, you know, even though they're so important. I, I would like you to tell the story of what just happened earlier this month, but let's back up and start with what or who is the International Code Council and what's their jurisdiction, if you will? So the, the International Code Council, to crib a, a line that The Guardian used in describing it once, which I really liked, is much like the World Series, something that does in fact have somewhat of an international footprint, but primarily pertains to the United States. And it is a nonprofit consortium of industry groups and local governments that come together to set the model codes for different buildings that are then enshrined as the baseline in many state laws and city or municipal laws. Basically, some building codes are set on the state level, some are set on the city level, but few cities have the wherewithal and the capacity to design their own building codes from the bottom up. And you also want some consistency for the industry as it manufactures different pieces of equipment and material for buildings. So this serves as that baseline that most states and cities use. So as I sort of tipped, cities like Minneapolis were making moves on their own to enshrine energy efficiency into their construction codes. And along the way, local governments realized they could participate more in the process. What, what happened? Yeah, so every three years, there is a vote on what is known as the Model Energy Code, the International Energy Conservation Code. And this is a broad set of requirements and mandates around how thick insulation needs to be in certain zones and what kind of windows are best to preserve energy within the building. And every year, there was a relatively low turnout of government voters who would have the final say on what made it into that model code. It was a pretty wonky topic. Few governments were fully aware of their ability to participate. And what happened is that in 2018, two things kind of converged. Both there was this growing frustration with the fact that the last two rounds of codes had made really meager improvements on energy efficiency overall, about 1% each time. And there was the UN's IPCC report, which really laid bare just how little time was left to dramatically slash planet heating emissions and keep climate change within a relatively safe range. And as a result, You had groups like the U.S. Conference of Mayors and other campaign organizations that tried to push a lot of sustainability policies through cities, organize their members, you know, which include virtually every city over 30,000 residents in the U.S., to get together and, and register eligible city officials to vote in the process that took place in late 2019, which would set the codes that are set to come into effect for 2021. And it was a huge success. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they, they had 
record voter turnout. They had hundreds of new government officials voting in the process and overwhelmingly voting for more aggressive measures to increase energy efficiency. Some of the improvements going up from that 1% improvement the last time around went as high as 14% for some residential buildings. Likewise, they approved new measures that would essentially bring this entire national building code in line with what many cities across the country are already doing to prepare for a low carbon future, you know, requiring the circuitry for electric appliances or electric vehicle chargers be included automatically in buildings because it's much more expensive to add those things after the fact. What ended up happening once the votes were tallied and it became clear that these city officials had successfully improved on the climate readiness of the code, industry groups push back. And those industry groups include the National Association of Home Builders, one of the largest trade groups in the country representing developers and construction companies, and the American Gas Association, uh, which represents gas utilities, which has a lot at stake in the potential transition away from gas heating and, and cooking. They rallied and first questioned the eligibility of the voters to cast ballots in this election at all. And when it became clear that the voters who did vote were totally eligible under the ICC's rules, they decided instead that they wanted to stem this from ever happening again and proposed that instead this code, the energy code, is put through a separate process known as a standards process, whereby there is no government vote at the end. It's done entirely through these kind of bureaucratic channels where there's no risk that government voters are going to buck with what the industry is comfortable with. And this is ultimately what they succeeded in making happen. Many readers, first of all, will have heard nothing at all about this behind-the-scenes part in the ICC, but they may have seen something like, you know, I saw a story in a Washington state paper that called the Daily News. Industry experts say updated building codes to add $20,000 to price of new Washington home. You know, home buyers could see thousands of dollars added on to new home costs by revised state building codes. This is from February of this year. It's not so surprising to see a kind of standard industry argument that the problem here is just cost to homeowners. It just costs more to make homes energy efficient. You have to look at that, obviously, in a different way, don't you? You have to reframe what costs mean. I mean, the homeowner is going to pay the cost of inefficiency, energy inefficiency, or of having their roof blow off. This, I think, gets at a really important point. The the Department of Energy, which made clear that it opposed this change at the ICC, although has limited power to do much about it because the ICC's codes are enshrined in state laws, not usually federal law. And so there's only so much that in a federalized system, you know, the Biden administration can do beyond the bully pulpit. But, you know, the, the Department of Energy's own analysis of past years of improved model energy codes found dramatic cost savings for homeowners on their energy bills. Likewise, a lot of architects and other groups that opposed this change would tell you that, look, you know, if you think it's expensive to add these things into new homes in advance of selling them, they are even more expensive to do after the home is sold. 
and a buyer needs to update the circuitry in their homes to accommodate technology that is pretty clearly in the pipeline right now. We are seeing the transition to electric vehicles and to electric appliances happening at a faster and faster rate every month. So that's another concern. Another thing to point out here is that the majority of homes that are new homes being built right now are in fact being built to have electric appliances. Mm -hmm. So this is essentially bringing a national standard in line with secular trends in the industry that ultimately save the homeowners money when they don't have to adapt a home that wasn't built to these new technological standards and that is going to save them money because they aren't going to be spending it on their electricity bill, something that I think people are probably particularly sensitive to right now at a time when we are seeing rates of utility shutoffs for low-income homeowners increasing now that the pandemic restrictions on doing so have ended. And when we've seen some of the really awful cases that took place in Texas amid the cold snap last month. So I think those can be a difficult argument to square when you consider how narrow it is about the cost to new homes. Likewise, something that people would often point to is that while it's a little bit more difficult to quantify the individual savings in one building to, you know, the avoided costs of climate disaster on a global scale, but, you know, we are seeing billion-dollar climate-fueled disasters mounting every single year in this country, and it is only projected to get worse. So something like this, which is able to lower emissions on a very large scale, was considered by a lot of advocates to be a really vital tool for achieving those goals and making those cuts in a way that was democratic and desirable for people. And that right is no longer in the hands of those policymakers. It's, it is now, as a result of this change, really uh, shifted into the hands. We've been speaking with Alexander Kaufman. You can find his work on building codes and climate change, along with other subjects, at HuffPost.com. Alexander Kaufman, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website. That's FAIR.org. That's also the place to sign up for FAIR's Action Alert Network or to learn about our newsletter, Extra. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.